Hi guys, it's Andy McDonald, physio and strength and conditioning coach, and welcome to the Informed Performance Podcast. Today's show, we'll be building on the shoulder series that Ben Ashworth has been hosting for us. Today, Ben will be speaking to Stig Anderson, a sports physiotherapist, researcher and lecturer who works at the Norwegian Institute of Sports Medicine in Oslo, looking largely at handball, tennis and also some baseball players. This episode has been sponsored by Vol Performance, makers of Forstex, the world's fastest, easiest and most powerful dual force plate system. Forstex can help you to analyse neuromuscular strength, performance and imbalances in your athletes. With an incredibly simple setup and intuitive software, Forstex automatically detects over 15 common force plate tests and analyzes them with a single click, helping you to collect quick and accurate insights on your athletes. To learn more, head over to our sponsor, volperformance.com. Before I hand over to Ben, just a quick reminder that in January, Inform Performance will be launching a digital magazine, featuring some great insights and content from some well-known professionals new to Inform Performance, but also some past guests to the show. To see updates on this, head over to our social media channels, Inform Performance on Instagram or at InformPod on Twitter. I'm going to hand over to Ben for another shoulder series conversation, which today is between him and Stig Anderson. Welcome everybody to the Inform Performance podcast. This is the second part of the European shoulder series that we're putting together. And uh, this week we've got a... uh, a special guest who I met again at the Liverpool conference. Um, it's Dr. Stig Anderson. Um, really delighted to have him on the show. And, uh, you know, I listened to him present on handball. He's well published, well researched, and um, it's, it's a real pleasure to have you on the show, Stig. So welcome, mate. Thank you very much, Ben. Thank you. Stig, um, if you can just, uh, for the listener's sake, explain a little bit about your background and uh you know, what you do and, um, and your journey to this point and, and what you're currently up to. Yeah, definitely. So I'm a, <clears throat> I'm a sports physiotherapist and uh, I did my master's in the Norwegian School of Sports Sciences. Uh, was finished there in 2013. And then I started my PhD at the Norwegian School of Sports Sciences in 2014. And uh, the topics of both my master's and uh, the PhD was handball. Uh, in the master's uh, project, I was involved in a risk factor study trying to identify risk factors for overuse injuries in uh, male handball players. And then in my PhD, I kind of continued that path, working on the prevention side of how to prevent overuse injuries in a throwing sport like handball. So that's the the main topics, my f- main finding in the PhD is that it, a warm-up program uh, implemented uh, during a season uh, showed uh, that we could reduce the amount of, uh, or the risk was 28% lower in the intervention group compared to the control group. So in, in short terms, that's the, that's the main, main finding in the PhD. Uh, and uh, I worked as a clinician, as a physio, in more than 10 years, also during my master's and during my PhD. And uh, the last seven years, I've been in the Norwegian Institute of Sports Medicine, which is based in Oslo, where I've focused on mainly shoulder patients. I have around 80% of my patients uh, have issues with the shoulder. And... uh, a big part of that is uh, handball players, it's tennis players, it's swimmers, and other. It can also be. Uh, I have a couple of baseball players, only two I've had last year, but still a couple of ones. But definitely the most patients are the, the normal people in the street, but uh, also top elite athletes. And. Uh, I've also traveled uh, three years with the national handball team, the male handball team, uh, as a physio. And uh, I've been to a couple of championships and kind of seen both the top of the handball players and I also have more the amateurs in the, in the clinic. So a, a large range of sort of shoulder patients, um, uh, you know, and, and handball, handball is um, a really interesting sport, which I 
I didn't really know much about until I heard you and, and Martin speak about it. Um, Martin will come on in, in part three uh, to talk to us a bit more about shoulders in this series. But yeah, yeah perhaps you can explain. So we, we're going to talk about return to play today. Um, but perhaps you can explain for the listeners uh, who don't know much about handball um, a little bit around the demands of the sport for us. Well, for me, it's the it's the best game in the world. Uh, if you ask me, um, <laughs> <laughs> it's it's not uh, it's not rugby, but it's uh, a lot of physical contact. But like in uh, in broad terms, it's uh, it's a team sport with two teams on the uh, on the pitch, and it's. Uh, 14 players uh, in total, six outfielders and uh, one goalkeeper on each team. And they play two halves of 30 minutes. And uh, it consists of a lot of uh, throwing, of course, during a game. It's recorded up to 94 passes and eight shots per player, depending on where they play on the, on the court. And then... Uh, uh, the rotation speed in the shoulder is measured to more than 5,000 degrees per second, so a little bit lower than baseball, but still. And uh, the, the forces in the shoulder when it's trying to break after you've performed the throw is up to 100% of your body weight. And then also during uh, a match, there will be around 20 situations one-to-one when they try to... Uh, Pass your opponent, and a defending player would will uh, perform about ten plus tackles per match, up to fifteen tackles per match. So it's it's a lot of throwing, and it's also a lot of physical contact, and it's uh, kind of like an explosive sport when it it kind of it goes between slow tempo and it explodes and gets rapid. So it's not completely rugby, but still, it's it's a physical game. Yeah, it's um, a collision. So the demands of the collision shoulder and also the uh, demands of the throwing shoulder th- thrown in together. Yeah, definitely <laughs> Pro- provides you a challenge, right? Yeah. So, um, how do you go about? I mean, uh, firstly, I'd like to say that you know, I've I've read I've read the papers that you published around your PhD work, and um, there's some really amazing work done in handball um, by you and others who've, who've got massive numbers through a number of, of, uh, of studies, a number of papers. It's, uh, it's really interesting to see that sort of collaboration and the shared information around this injury risk minimization. Um, so yeah, for the listeners, definitely go and have a look and see uh, on YouTube what handball looks like for certain to give you a bit more color. Um, how do you go about, if we're talking about return to play and, and specifically that kind of transition from rehabilitation to that end stage return to handball, how do you start with looking at, you know, creating sports specific exercises in, in your rehab? And, and, and how do you sort of think about that when you're going about working with these athletes? That's a really good question, Ben. Uh, I, I want to highlight first that. Uh, Phase three, the towards the end stage of the rehab, that's the most challenging, and that's where physios need to kind of get up the game and uh, get better at. Uh, first of all, you need to know the sport. You need to know the demands of the sport they're going back to to be able to uh, close the gap between rehab and uh, the sport. For example, just doing rotator cuff exercises with a teraband or doing push-up exercises, that's that's not handball. So you need to kind of dig into the demands of the sport. Uh, and then based on that, when you're in during phase three, you need to make exercises uh, which is similar to the, to the sport they're going back to, which can be a difficult thing and a continuous process uh, and I also try to involve the, the players in this phase. Uh, for example, I know handball, but for example, if I have a gymnast or if I have a swimmer, which I'm not that familiar with, I try them to 
get involved and also the coaches of the, uh, the athletes players get them involved and kind of okay what's the demands of the sport it's that that and that okay put on a list kind of like your comeback list i need to be able to do this and this and this and this and then we make a plan so my job is more to make exercises which uh, make sense uh, getting the back to the demands the shoulder is is uh, going to perform under so yeah exactly um like w- what specifically do you then get your athletes doing with, with regard to that re- that phase three yeah exercise prescription yeah so we can <clears throat> if you first take uh let's take an overused shoulder injury as an example let's say there's a problem with supraspinatus it could be a tendinopathy it could be a partial rupture uh, that shoulder needs to go back to be able to rotate more than 5,000 degrees per second and it needs to be able to perform around 1,200 throws per week. So first of all, uh, in the strength training, you need to know your exercise pres- prescription. Uh, so you don't stop with hypertrophy or max strength training you also need to do explosive training and power training the weight of a handball i know this in grams i don't know it in pounds but then it's a little less than half a kilo for male players and a little bit less than 400 grams per handball player so you need to kind of figure out how to put stress on the shoulder similar to throwing in the gym uh, and let's and further on then you need to build capacity with the shoulder uh, to be able to throw that much, which is that's the goal for the shoulder. And then we kind of build it up from, let's say we start throwing just tennis balls, lightweight, and then we build up when uh, they've done this for X period of time without negative response in, in terms of pain or pain that lasts more than 24 hours. Then we start building up with a handball and we do it like, okay, you're going back to five handball practices per week or six or whatever. Then we build a program from two times per week with X number of short throws, X number of medium throws, X number of uh, more long throws. And then we gradually increase over X number of weeks. That might take from six weeks to 12 weeks, depending on the problem. And uh, we also start them by throwing individually, just by themselves towards a wall with, with just one partner. And then we kind of have control over how much throwing can they cope with during a week when we start uh, training with, uh, with uh, the team then they have a limit on X number of maximum throws per per, per session, for example. Um, so that's the overuse side of it. An example, other different example could be player coming back from, uh, from uh, a trauma injury, for example, an uh, anterior luxation, for example, which have been stabilized with bankrupt surgery and still the same demands they are going back to. But then in the phase three, three rehab, we we make sure that we don't stay within the comfort zone. We go towards the risk zones during rehab. So the player build confident that I can manage to, you know, have my hand straight up over my head and I'm stable and I'm, uh, I have lots of strength in this position. I can go into the throwing position where I might be tackled. And getting tackled in the throwing, it's basically doing uh, like provoking an anterior luxation. So we kind of we dig into the the scary stuff during the rehab, if uh, if that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, it does. Um, creating a bit of chaos. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I think, you know, from that side, w- what we spoke about before um, is that there, there may be a chance to share in the show notes yeah. some of these kind of exercises that you might use and, uh, you know, 
it was great of you to agree that that you can do that so that the, yeah. the uh, listeners can see you know what you've done to try and create because there's, there's no research out there to tell you how to rehab a handball player is there so you know so you've had to you've had to create a lot of these exercises for that return to play phase yeah definitely i mean there's there's loads of editorials and like reviews of how to rehab a throwing shoulder but then again when when you get to phase 3 my feeling is that uh, it's commented on but it just says basically you need to do sport specific exercises okay so what what's that so be able to do that you need to know the sport or you need to dig into the sport or you need to get information from people who know the sport so no it's it's difficult to find like a we have a recipe on phase three and uh, you need to kind of walk the walk and find out as you go uh, which is interesting exciting and uh, getting better and better hopefully each each time i do it <laughs> yeah it's a, it's, a, it's a chance to play isn't it it's a chance to play and definitely make mistakes and and learn from them for sure yeah um i'm interested in how you know whether someone is is improving you know how how do you know whether someone is ready to go back and uh, and i suppose this is this idea of um how do you guide that progression of rehabilitation through these phases what how do you how do you do that with your athletes yeah, that's, that's a very good question but like the first time you meet an athlete for example humble player their questions will be what's wrong how long will it take when i when uh, can i play again that's the main questions and also what can i do of course but that might be like after a shoulder surgery that might be six months nine months uh, so you need to kind of break it down for them and kind of set goals with uh, within shorter reach to keep the motivation high and then we're we're getting to more like trying to set call it milestones or markers or benchmarks and what we use then is of course we use range of motion uh, and compared to the to the non-dominant uh, unaffected side and then we use uh, i use isometric strength with a handheld dynamometer like uh, hhd uh, and I don't have access to isokinetic testing, but I would use it if I had it. Uh, and then we also try to uh, test the stability, like be able to replicate the demands of handball in in uh, during an assessment in a clinic. It's difficult. You 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 need to kind of use your brain a bit and. Uh, to be able to test the stability, okay, you can do an apprehension test or you can do a jerk test for posterior relaxation. But then again, it doesn't it doesn't reflect the stuff that these guys are going back to. So also used uh, other tests we've used is uh, you know the names in Norwegian how those call them uh, the close kinetic change ones. Uh, yep. Like the close kinetic, I used to call it push-up tap test, and then you have the yep. modified weight balance upper quarter test. That's the name. I use those, and unfortunately, I really would like to get my hands on force plates to do the ash test, which you can talk about. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it it reflects my uh, my thoughts. I can they can kind of pass the range of motion. They can pass the HHD measurements isometric, but then again, we it's still a black hole that we don't know are they ready or are they not ready, uh, which I think force space can be a like a good tool to do. You can do dash test, you can do more uh, push ups uh, exercises or drop from boxes and land on the shoulders and see if they really trust the shoulder or not. Uh, so. You asked me how do I kind of progress to rehab. I set this is only uh, like experience based, but in handball before they start to throw, I want them to have less than five degrees difference in total range of motion compared to non-dominant side. 
and uh, I like full pain-free range of motion, but it depends. Uh, a thrower might have more than what you expect, so you kind of need need to know the sport. And then I want them to have a pain-free break tread test isometrically, and then I want them to have uh, a, like at least ninety percent of. Uh, 15 rotations sideline, so the more the endurance test of the shoulder, and then to, yeah, and then to be able to start training with uh, with the team, they should be more than 10 percent stronger in the rotator cuff on the dominant side, and the external to internal uh, ratio should be more than 80 percent, and then again pain free break test, but then we do the break test in 1990 supine. And then, if it's uh, if it's an instability issue, they need to be safe in uh, risk zones. Uh, and then, before they kind of go back to play, they have to have pain-free throwing, of course, and also pain-pain-free maximum throwing. And then, being able to participate participate a full training week without any uh, restrictions. And then we do, we can talk a little bit more about uh, one more test, which I want to mention, which is experience-based. And the idea of this test, this is this is kudos to Martin Asko, who's coming up uh, after me, I think. Uh, he's made kind of this framework, and the idea is to kind of throw the worst scenario at the player. Which which we can make. So we quite, we try to replicate handball. So what we do in that test, it takes about forty minutes. We they warm up as they were to play a match. They do their shoulder exercises during the warm up, and then we measure them during the test uh, with uh, with isometrically, and then we do. We start throwing on uh, 50%, and then they do burpees, uh, sideways movements with tackles. Then we throw again with increased uh, intensity, measure the strength again, burpees again, sideways, throwing harder, so and so on and so on. So trying to replicate what the man's on the shoulder would be during a, during a match. And ideally, that test should be performed three, four times per week, which is the setting they're going back to. So we try to kind of replicate the demands in handball. So, but it's not evidence, but it's just based on experience, but uh, it's the best we can do. But it's a good feeling to have done that because then you kind of, you get a feel of, uh, is this player ready or not for the demands they're going back to? So. If it were a tennis player swimmer, the test would be different, but then you know to, you need to know the sport. So again, it's about closing the gap between return to play testing and the sport, uh, basically. That makes sense. Yeah, I'm, it does make sense. And I think it's a really nice balance between that kind of objective uh, isometric testing and then this um, simulation, essentially, of, of the sport. Yeah. And then continually testing to see what the cost of going up each level. Yeah. Um, yeah. Where most people break down is they pass the, they pass the handheld tests and then they get thrown straight into activity, whether it's handball yeah. or, you know, other similar sports. And I think just having that, the, the ability to measure an athlete through a, this simulation period before they return to the actual sport itself is, is really key. And yeah. that sounds like a really good process. Yeah, it is, and it's. Uh, I think the players like it too because they they can put the men's on their shoulder in a kind of safe setting in the clinic where we we have this where you need a little bit of space, but then you can kind of simulate the worst case scenario. And I think they appreciate it that it's done in. A, they feel more secure. I have one example. I had. Uh, she was around 20 years old, handball player, was going back and she passed all the strength testing we had done. We have progressed during rehab and she was kind of time-wise, she was 
nine months after shoulder stabilization surgery. And then we did the test. And during the test, she was doing tackles. When I'm then I'm the handball player, she's going to tackle during the test. And then as soon as we kind of made a collision, she you could just see that she she just stopped and she this is not going to work because she felt unstable and insecure. So it kind of highlighted that well she's she's not ready, so we need to hold her back. Well, experience there, <laughs> good experience for you. But it's better that she breaks down under control you know or under pseudo control that then breaks down in the actual game you know because no yeah. coach wants you know the coach will be turning around and looking at you with an evil stare when he yeah. sees uh, his athlete his athlete break down on court whereas if you can control it and you know um go back to the drawing board and yeah. try and get that shoulder more stable so yeah it's 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 going to happen isn't it once you start to take yeah. the handbrake off but but that's uh, like uh just a little little thought there when i meet the players and I, when I start to get to know them uh, again like instability issue but then I am pretty clear with them that during the rehab we need to it need to get messy and it need to get a little bit scary <laughs> and the reason for that is that when we tell you that okay you're ready to go back we're confident so it the exercises we choose might, it's knock on wood, haven't happened yet, but one of my colleagues had a patient doing the phase three exercises, putting stability uh, demands on the shoulder and the shoulder went out of place during the exercise. It might happen, but as long as the players know that, okay, we're going into this little bit scary stuff, but we, we need to because otherwise we don't know. So that's the that's the kind of end stage stuff. And, and I think, you know, for my own interest, um, you've talked about the ratio there yeah. from the handheld as being, you know, above 80% to return to throwing. So the external rotator is basically up above 80% of the internal. Yeah. Do, you have, um, do you have some example benchmarks of a, a strength value? You can use it grams pounds whatever you like <laughs> it doesn't, doesn't matter uh, yeah yeah so ben i use uh, newtons uh, so um, during my phd we tested uh, 660 humble players half and half male female at wow. the top level so i'm uh, it's not published numbers but i have the numbers so what i use is when we do the isometric testing, we do it in supine in the 1990, like the throwing position, supine. For the internal rotation, the male's normative values is 214 newtons and external rotation is 201. And the ratio is then 96. And the females are 156 in, 140 out, and then 91% uh, ratio. So that's uh, more like, but that's the average age of the males are 20, 27 and a half, I think, and the females are 22 and a half in these numbers. So I tend to, I tend to use them and show them this is kind of the, this is the, the gold standard or what you want to call it. You need to get, get back to this. That is perfect for, for me as well. I mean, I, I, I love the love the numbers, um, particularly around shoulders, and just being able to have that huge amount of data as normative data. You know, it's it's unpublished, but you, you've you've got six hundred and sixty uh, an n of six hundred and sixty there. That's that's fantastic, yeah. hugely powerful data. That's really useful. Yeah, fantastic. it's good. It's good numbers to have, definitely. And it sits roughly actually around some of the data that. I would have gathered again, not published from judo players. So, um, you know, slightly different position. We we chose prone actually to do the same same sort of testing. Um, ratio was around one as well, external to internal, and our cutoff point for a pass mark was around twenty kilograms. Yeah. Um, and, and in fact, it was it, we worked it out more on sort of body weight percentages, so around twenty percent of their body weight was their cutoff um 
Yeah. So, and you use you use absolute values, or do you use like relative to body weight as well? How how do you go about that? I tend to use absolute values when I show it to the players. It makes more sense for them. But if I were to do like research projects or more, I would adjust it for body weight definitely. But it makes sense for them to see like an absolute value. Yeah, maybe drives a bit of competition as well if someone's scoring uh, yeah. higher than the rest right definitely uh, when they come in the clinic uh, they always saying can we do the testing and can we do the testing which is a good thing then they kind of they know they have to do their job to yeah get back uh, and i suppose the the relevance of this is is one thing as well i spoke to um freddie last time around this and he was he had a sort of refreshing view on things that he he only chose to dig deeper with objective measurement when they highlighted a specific risk mm. um but in this case do you do you have preseason measures on all these players as well that you can you can benchmark against uh on some of them if they are on the national team uh the male national team the female national team i can kind of get hands on their preseason numbers because they do this uh, isometric tests as a part of their Preseason testing, so yeah, I can, and that's that's all definitely a good thing. And so we we've covered a lot of the sort of end stage or phase three transition from rehab to handball, um, and and how you navigate your way through that. Can you, you know, early on now, if we go back a little bit more to the earlier part of the rehab, can you sort of talk and explain about some maybe some pretty easy sport specific tasks that you would uh, that you, you would include in the rehab process yeah <clears throat> like uh, easy sport specific task for handball would be throwing with uh, uh, like a more lightweight ball tennis ball for example it would also be in in the gym doing uh, throwing motions with weights in like accelerating and deaccelerating and then I would uh, prescribe it as, um, uh, for example, a power exercise. So we stay uh, like zero to 50% of one repetition maximum. We do six reps, four sets, two to four times per week. And and I want to highlight uh, uh, the importance of prescribing power exercises because uh, they're not def- necessarily used to doing that. They do it probably with their legs in squats and stuff, but for the shoulder, they're not used to doing that. So you need to spend a little bit of time with them to kind of figure out that they're actually... So the point is when you do the power exercises, you need to have maximum speed during the exercise. That's the whole thing. And... Uh, a good tool to do kind of measure stuff around that is using muscle lab, which I've just started with. Uh, it's just like a thread you can, yeah, you're familiar with that, right? And it's surprisingly that they're way off often when they think they're within what they're supposed to do. So I spend a lot of time. That that's not easy exercises. You ask me for that, but <laughs> again, this is kind of the stuff I spend loads of time on. Um, but if you take more easy exercises, if you want to address the rotator cuff in the shoulder, it's you know limited different stuff you can do. But I tend to do, do both open and closed kinetic chain for them, uh, and uh, I tend to start uh, not necessarily in the throwing position, but going towards the throwing position and uh, set the bands to the cuff. Uh, And I often, pretty early, I kind of establish like a three, let's call it like a three split uh, with aims. So they should have like, they should take responsibility for the warm-up before doing throwing. So we spend uh, quite time on kind of establishing this is this is a warm-up strategy. You're supposed to do this before every time you throw the rest of your career, actually. Uh, 
So we spend a lot of time on warm-up routine, and then we spend a lot of time in the gym, and then we spend a lot of time on gradually progressing throwing with the shoulder. So that's probably the three main pillars we do in the in the rehab of handball players. And why am I spend time on the warm-up routine is basically because of my PhD. I know that it works, so <laughs> kind of need to sell it into them. That uh, don't don't uh, just fumble around and do and run around. Be focused and do your stuff before you start throwing. Basically, yeah. And is that um, that's something you can potentially share with us as well uh, in, mm. in the show notes? Stig? Is that something you can um, give some examples for us? Yeah, definitely. Okay. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Great. So that's the kind of early stuff. You've got your handball player. They're progressing back. They're not fully ready to go on the court and take part in full training yet. Um, what do you do in between that kind of rehab, the chaos you've created, the simulation testing and going back into, is there another stage between simulation and going back into full training? Um, it's maybe a little bit in between there, but uh, we do a limited on court practice, uh, like, um, for example, like a handball uh, training session will last from 90 to 120 minutes and it's different uh, stuff going on during those minutes. So we kind of, okay, you can, uh, you can perform the warm up, you can perform warm up of the goalkeeper, you can do technical stuff. But when it comes to, for example, uh, play or, or if they spend a lot of time on uh, they throwing technique or the shooting technique and just stand and throw, throw, throw. We ask them to, you're not supposed to be part of that yet, but then you will come to that. So we kind of break down uh, the sessions into different parts and then we kind of uh, let them participate in that, that and that. And if that goes okay for two sessions, then you can do this, this and this. So it's all about kind of knowing the... Again, I'm repeating myself, but the demands that are going back to. So you need to know uh, the maximum demands during a match, but also the demands during a, a training week. Because the issue with throwing isn't necessarily in the in the matches, which are one to three, maybe one to two per week. That's peanuts. The throwing they do is in the practice. So we kind of. We also spend quite some time on uh, on the setup of the of the training week and uh, how they're supposed to getting back to it, basically. Um, other stuff I want to highlight. We've talked a little bit. We've gone a little bit back and forth, but I want to mention also the the psychological readiness. Uh, and of course, you can talk to the players, but you can also use like questionnaires for this. So if it's an overuse injury, I would use the curl and job uh, orthopedic clinical shoulder and elbow questionnaire, which I find is really good and it's translated to Norwegian and validated. So I use that one. And I don't necessarily use the whole, I, they answer the whole questionnaire, but if I, I know the questionnaire, so if it's question XXX and I see that, okay, this is way off, then I spend time talking to them about those issues. And if it's an instability issue, I use the shoulder instability return to sport after injury or the WUSI, the Western Ontario Shoulder Instability Index. So I kind of, I used questionnaires both as like a normal questionnaire tool, but I kind of extrapolate the questions which I see that this way off because I've seen too many times that they are good at the tests, they are doing great in rehab, but it's still like a mental issue going back. They don't trust the shoulder, not necessarily after an overuse injury, but more in instability injury. I find that, uh, yeah, we should address that in the clinic also. Yeah, it's another part of the another part of the puzzle, isn't it, in terms of their readiness to return to performance? Yeah, absolutely. 
Uh, and I also want to, I have <clears throat> like uh, thought uh, a lot about this return to play stuff. I've given you a couple of lectures during the past weeks. And kind of the story, if we, if you're familiar with Rual Bars, uh, editorial voice cleaning tests don't work and probably never will. <laughs> so he's kind of, which is a great paper and kind of highlights the issues. So we're trying to kind of, uh, in injury prevention, uh, get a hold of risk factors to kind of uh, predict, which is not possible, <laughs> who's getting injured. And then uh, again, when we're doing the re return to play testing, we're doing the testing to trying to get uh, the feel of our prognosis or kind of, uh, okay, you have X percent uh, risk of getting a re-injury. But my feeling is we might end up in the same place as we've done with risk factor studies for injury prevention that we might, maybe we won't be able to kind of predict uh, and taking that further is thinking, what can we learn from normal shoulder rehab? Like the papers by Rachel Chester. So when I have a normal shoulder patient, uh, uh, the most important stuff I can get from the patient, it's not my tests. It's not, it's, are, are the patient still in, in work or is he on sick leave? That's a big difference prognosis-wise, uh, the baseline level of pain, and, interesting, the expectation of uh, physiotherapy, which is kind of um, getting the feel of with the, with the top athletes also. Uh, if they're not, kind of, their head is not in place, we, we should explore that more. And uh, I would love to have, like, uh, proper markers that if you reach this, this is the X percent, but I, I'm afraid we might end up in the same place we've done with the, the risk factor history with the injury prevention. So, do you have any, have any thoughts on that? Or yeah, yeah, I do. I think um, I think for those people that do measure a lot, and I'm someone that does use numbers or like to use data. It's about um, it's about the filter. It's about the human filter and one of the unquantifiable things, even if you've got a questionnaire looking at psychological readiness is the psychology of the athlete and their, their, their perception of their, their shoulder and the readiness to return. So yeah, the numbers are a guide, but they're just one part of the big, big picture. And you're always going to have outliers that don't pass tests and go back and succeed and don't break down. And then there's going to be others who pass all the tests or all the things that you think of that you can test. And they go back and then, you know, things happen, right? So uh, you can't guarantee, you can never guarantee that your testing is going to give someone a 100% um, safe return to sport. Um, but I suppose when I, when I look at it from my perspective, if I'm going to work, I probably want to build as big a picture around that athlete as I can. And over time, if you've got the same sort of amount of information that you've got with 660 people, um, you can get much more confidence from that, that fewer, fewer of those athletes broke down through rehab processes. You know, when they, when they passed X, Y, and Z, they return. But the other thing, the other thing I think about, I don't know what you think about this is that actually it's a really useful thing to do is to set these guidelines and then if something does go wrong, you can always go back and go, well, well did we stick to our process? Mm. Definitely. And yeah. I think it becomes quite useful like that. Yeah. What do you think? Um, yeah. Is that something you think of? Yeah, definitely. Every time when the shit hits the fan, when uh, when uh, when you don't don't succeed, I definitely I go back in the history in the journal and kind of, okay, what, what kind of possibly, did we kind of stick to the plan or did we take some... Uh, some turns uh, during and uh, yeah it's, sometimes it's clear for me that okay this wasn't addressed good enough but sometimes it's just all good all the way uh, but still they're not able to go back so i i agree you will all, you will have the players they pass all of it 
they don't go back and then again you will players that don't do the rehab good enough but they still go back so it's uh it's uh no it's uh it's not a clear-cut picture always yeah uh, yeah 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 it's not an exact science for sure that's no. the, that's one of, one of the things i'd say all right well i think you know we've we've covered a lot around the return to play stuff and uh we've We've covered that nicely. One of the things I was thinking just as we've been talking and, and thinking about shoulders, um, we, we see obviously a lot of sports where you can produce high ground reaction forces as an example um, and use the kinetic chain almost to offload the shoulder. So with the sport of handball, you know, how, much do you, how much do you consider that or how does that differ when you're utilizing the kinetic chain from a sport like baseball where, where you know, your feet are on the ground and yeah. you can produce those ground reaction forces? How does that differ? Uh, that's, a, that's a good good question. Uh, but, uh, let's see if I can make an example out of this. Um, so we'll, uh, we'll start with an overuse injury again. So it's the rotator off. It might be super spanners. Uh, might be a slap lesion and so on but still uh, we we spend a lot of time on video of them throwing and both from the ground and when they're jumping and this will kind of fit in uh, end phase two start phase three we don't always do this but i i always look at them throw but if i kind of get interested i i tell them to videotape their techniques and from different angles because the kinetic chain in this manner I will it's more like the technique of throwing and they're not used to working on that as handball players that just told to throw as hard as you can basically <laughs> so we spend a lot of time on video and what we typically see is that when they're jumping the way they kind of transfer the force from uh, through the body to the handball, uh, they lose, they do this, uh, it's difficult to explain, but I try. You should kind of, you shouldn't jump and split your legs too much. You sh- and you should kind of get, bring them in under you. And then as you go forward, the legs should go forwards as the arm goes forward. So the energy kind of, you don't lose the energy on the way. And that's one. And then we use that videotape to kind of show them. And we have like this example of a guy doing it or a girl doing it perfectly. And then we break it down to exercises. Okay, start doing this, this, and this. And then try to adapt this into your throwing motion when you when you go back to handle. And again, uh, from the shoulder, um, they should, they tend to, uh, don't some of them don't use the thoracic rotation so they are more kind of face and the whole body are towards the goal instead of getting if they're right-handed getting the left hand uh, shoulder towards the goal so rotate the upper body and not which might save the shoulder a little bit from going way into external rotation so we yeah we spend a lot of time on that on, on video if it's necessary if it if that makes sense for you if that was the question yeah that's 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 interesting actually so that the, there's going to be a sort of ideal there's going to be an ideal throwing action of course there's going to be yeah. technical variations within with it well maybe style variations within athletes but actually there's yeah. a there's a throwing model for handball that's that's something that you go back to as a like a template um and can and can try and adjust it basically around offloading the shoulder. So yeah, that, that yeah. makes a lot of sense. Yeah, it's 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 quite quite a few biomechanical studies uh, from this from the Netherlands and a couple of ones from Norway and yeah, Netherlands I think. So uh, yeah, it's like the ideal throwing motion with the goal of uh, reaching the maximum intensity in your throw. And the players love that when you tell them if you do this. I don't tell them you you save your shoulder, but I tell them you will you will throw hard as uh, hard as F. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah you, you you'll get their buy-in for sure with that. That's that's perfect. Yeah. Ideal, ideal, mate. Stig, it's been um, 
it's been a really great conversation with you and um you know i'd, I'd actually hopefully take you up on the offer to come and visit you when the, when all this uh, travel oh yeah um travel limitation stops i'd love to come and see the sport and how you work around the sport it would be great for my own learning um for the listeners uh where where can they find you um are you on social media uh yeah i am on twitter uh, stieg h anderson so it's my name with an h in between there uh, and you can find me on uh yeah twitter is probably the best that's where i spend my time with uh, the, my research stuff and uh, the, my physio stuff that's great so uh, we will we will point people in your direction again using the show notes and we'll try and pick up with a few of the exercises and a couple of things that you've mentioned um throughout the throughout this talk um I've really enjoyed it. Of course, I've enjoyed it. It's about return to play, markers and shoulders, the two things that, um, you know, I can geek out on for hours and hours and hours. So uh, once again, Stig, great pleasure. This has been part of um, a, a series, a shoulder series, a European shoulder series. We're going to do part three with Martin Asker um, coming up sometime um, in the near future. And then we're going to get all of the three of these guys, these top European shoulder rock stars back for a summary question and answer pod. So if you've got any questions, contact us at Informed Performance using either social media or through the website. Um, yeah, so once again, thanks very much, Stig, for your time today. And, uh, and, and I hope the isolation up, way up north in Norway goes well for you in the, in the freezing cold. Thanks a lot, buddy. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yes. Big thanks to Stig for coming on the show today and nice work from Ben hosting another great shoulder series conversation. As usual, head over to informperformance.com if you'd like to see the show notes for today's episode or any previous episodes. Thanks for listening to today's episode. Catch us next week for more performance and sports medicine insights.